I am Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And we have two guests today, one in the studio, one on the phone. In, in the studio is Stephanie Belores, VP and Group Director. And on the phone is Jeff Pollard, VP and Principal Analyst, to discuss some of the acute and expected staffing shortages in security as cybersecurity risks continue to escalate. Welcome to both of you. Thanks. Excited to be here for this one. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's start with the number itself. What are we projecting in terms of unfilled jobs as we go forward? Depending on where you get your numbers from, it can range, but uh, Department of Labor estimates, um, surveys and research done out there in the industry, put it somewhere between 1.8 and 2.2 million um, openings out there in terms of shortfall over, say, the next sort of three to five years from a cybersecurity perspective. And I've seen some sources also cite 3 million if you go globally as Mm. well. So a lot of those statistics are just for the U.S. And your comment is not that the labor market's really good, and so people are having trouble filling all sorts of jobs across the enterprise. There's something very specific happening here. I think the overall major thing that we took away from our research on this is that in so many ways, the perception of the staffing shortfall out there is very much self-inflicted. Uh, the organizations that we talked to, the requisitions that we reviewed, uh, the candidates looking for jobs out there that we discussed really identified a number of things that were problematic sort of structurally across the industry in terms of how people hire. Uh, a few of those, first, linking security compensation to IT compensation was a major problem. In fact, one of the executives that we spoke with from a manufacturer here in the U.S. mentioned that the majority of security hires on his team were brought in and needed an exception from HR because his comp from a banding salary total package perspective is tied to IT, despite the fact that security personnel where he lives, where he's recruiting, are in substantially higher demand than kind of traditional IT skills. So that's definitely one problem. I think one of the other big, big problems is that the skill sets that most requisitions look for are just completely asymmetric compared to the compensation. One of the ways that we frame this in the research is that we found a lot of cybersecurity leaders that wanted to hire MacGyver, but paid like McDonald's. Um, this sort of lack of awareness that the skill sets that they were looking for were just completely imbalanced compared to the compensation that they were willing to pay. And we found that time and time again as we reviewed recommendations out there. I'm sorry, requisitions out there. So I, I'm hearing from that, Jeff, that there's an inherent desire to hire pre-built experts. So if you look at other disciplines, marketing or IT, a thought process is I'm going to hire junior people. I'll build the skills as they evolve their you know, career, but I'm not hiring them at, their, at the highest of echelons. But in security, you're saying they're trying to pr- buy pre-built expertise. Yeah, it's interesting. I think also over the course of our research, too, if you look at some of the job descriptions, they were also just nonsensical. They were asking for years of expertise in technologies that hadn't even been around that long. But also maybe to your point about pre-built experts, like at what level? Like is it, you know, entry level 
uh, job recs that you're looking at that are requiring years of experience or years of expertise too, exactly. right? Like and degrees and certifications. Yep. So just so, yeah, they, 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 they was just, yeah, they were, they wanted like ready experts, like right off the street. And then to Jeff's point, not well, if you want that, then you have to be prepared to pay for that because you're competing with um, consultancies that are dramatically growing their cybersecurity practices. You're competing with the U.S. federal government that's growing and hiring cybersecurity professionals as fast as they can. So it was just a lot of the job descriptions, like I said, were, were nonsensical in the requirements that they were looking at. And then they were also unreasonable in terms of their, their compensation. To give an example of that, and we actually included a few of these in the report, what we commonly saw were things like entry-level cybersecurity analyst positions, both in Europe and in the United States, that wanted someone with a bachelor's of of science, right, so a BS in computer science or cybersecurity, uh, something like that, a master's degree in cybersecurity, and then a minimum of five to seven years' experience in cybersecurity. But then the total compensation for that uh, was somewhere in sort of the 50,000 U.S. dollar range or, or 39,500 uh, pounds. One of these requisitions that we found was in the U.K., for example. And that doesn't even include the skill sets that were listed in that requisition. We just sort of pulled out and looked at it experientially uh, to identify some of the gaps there. And that was the part that was um, that, that was particularly challenging, right, because if you're not bringing people into the field at the entry level, then obviously everything else is problematic because you're also reducing the pipeline that you're going to have of mid-level talent, you know, two, three, four, and five years from now. Yeah, Go back to something you originally asked about, Victor, which is, is there something different about security versus general IT? The, the demand is higher for security. I mean, so it, our inability to fill these roles is self-inflicted, but the demand is real. It, you know, we really are um, have have a need to like grow more security professionals and staff more security professionals. And part of it is the changing threat landscape. It continues to evolve. It continues to mutate, as I like to say. Um, but if you also just look at CISOs budgets and CISOs roles and responsibilities, they're growing as well. I think when I first became the research director of the team in 2010, like the typical um, budget for the CISO was seven percent of the overall IT budget. Hmm. Today, it's actually as high as 12 to 15%. But then if you also take into account what the rest of IT spends on security, it actually jumps into 25% range. And then if you look at the CISO roles and responsibilities, in some cases, they have everything from core cybersecurity to business continuity and overall IT risk, all the way to e-discovery, which is more legal and compliance oriented. So a lot of times when we're talking about the staffing shortage, we're not just talking about core cybersecurity skills. We're talking about all kinds of skills across a very broad, very broad organization as well. So you said the word mutate. When I think about that, if I acquire talent that has a very specific, tangible, possibly finite skill set, they tend to get locked into those things and they don't handle the adaptability question very well. Like it might be that this year, this is a big deal. The next year, that's a big deal. And it's almost like you have to hire a mindset of being able to mutate with whatever's happening with the market. So how much are they attempting to buy tangible skills that don't mutate as fast as the risk mutates? Yeah, exactly. And I think, Jeff, you could probably speak to this, but I think when you guys were doing the research for the staffing report, um, there were some forward-looking companies, and that's one of the things they emphasize, which is um, core skills that you can't necessarily teach, like intellectual curiosity, inquisitiveness, uh, you know, adaptability. So 
Yeah, because whatever skill set is required today, that might not be what you need four years down the road. You know, four years down the road, maybe you need somebody who knows the ins and outs of some facial recognition technology that's going to be deployed in your new retail location. But that wasn't what you hired for today. You didn't envision that four exactly. years ago. Yeah. Right. But a core skill might be critical thinking, pattern recognition, other types of things that can be deployed to different technologies or different scenarios. Correct. Yep. And, and I think that a big thing there, and this is something that a number of the security leaders that we spoke with talked about, is that um, it's hard to assess for those skills, right? One of the reasons why you have sort of this overqualification-itis from a requisition perspective is that it's much more definitive or quantitative, if you will, to look at a candidate and say, they know the five technologies that I want. It's much more difficult to create an interview process that can, and it's really a screening process for candidates that can identify sort of these concepts like intellect, motivation, and fit, which is what one of the vendors um, that we talked to really mentioned as kind of um, important things that they evaluated, right? They, they really weren't as focused on the raw skill set of the candidates because they felt like those are the people when you identify that set of characteristics or behaviors, those are the people that you can teach almost anything to. They're driven. They're going to learn new things. They're going to adapt to your point. And they sort of treat this almost as a craft, right, yeah. as opposed to just a job. And so that, that really what that means for security leaders is that they have to sort of fundamentally shift the way that they screen candidates and the way that they interview candidates so that way they can start emphasizing the sort of behavioral characteristics that can make someone successful over a long term. So part of it is the pool of candidates that you're looking at broaden your scope or take a different lens to that group of people, right? But then once you get people in, is there, to Jeff's point, a different method in which you should be interviewing these folks, providing scenarios for them to see how they think or approach or see patterns or whatever? So it's both a pool of candidates issue, but once you get them in the door, what does that process look like? Correct. It's it's looking at a different pool. It, it might also be you becoming much more active in filling the pipeline. Mm. Um, like actually, when we were doing the research for the Women in Cybersecurity Report, we, we talked to a lot of vendors that were being really proactive about encouraging girls at a very young age to actually consider um, not just careers generally in STEM, but specifically in cybersecurity. Um, Palo Alto Networks, for example, has actually worked with the Girl Scouts to actually have like a cybersecurity badge as, you know, one, wow. of, one of the badges that they can earn. And you've seen other large vendors from um, IBM and, and other companies offer free training classes targeted at younger girls. So there, there's a lot of companies that are like they're thinking very long term. Yeah, so, the market, yeah. Yeah, we're going to increase the, the, the pipeline and the pool of candidates. We'll look at a, a much broader pool. Um, and then to your point, the whole actually recruiting them into the company is a specialized skill. But then once you have them in the company, having a commitment to their development, mm. I think, is also critical because um, it's also a retention issue right. as well. Um, security people like to keep their skills sharp. They actually like to learn new things. So if you also are successful in recruiting people into the company, getting them to stay is also another challenge because they're constantly being headhunted and recruited by other organizations and agencies. So if you want them to stick around, you're going to have to commit to their continuous development, their skills, um, make the job interesting. Um, I also think security professionals too, tend to have a kind of ethical foundation. They often care very much about privacy as well. So that gets into the larger scope of what the mission of the company is and recruiting and retaining the best talent in security. Yeah, I think for, for a long time now, security 
uh, folks, especially that have been in the industry for a while, you know, very much do sort of feel it, it's a it's a calling, if you will, right? And I and I think that's the wrong way to think about it. But what we're seeing across the board, as you look at you know entry level candidates, especially folks that um, are younger, you know, just coming out of college, or whatever, there there is more of a value based decision, an ethics based decision about the kind of companies that they want to work for. And I think one of the interesting things about security or cybersecurity as a career um, is that we really start to learn sort of how things can be misused, right, or how things can break or or whatever. And so that does have a natural fit for someone that, that you know, has sort of a, a set of ethical values because by definition in your career, you're able to sort of confront and stop people from doing things that you wouldn't want them to do, right? That's the essence of sort of being in a sock, right, where you're looking at, at alerts coming into the environment and trying to figure out which ones are evildoers, right, which ones are, are bad people trying to get in and do something they shouldn't. So there's sort of a natural payoff, if you will, for someone that's concerned about right and wrong um, or ethics from a security perspective, just in terms of the sort of adversarial nature of defenders versus attackers. I want to visit the diversity question a bit, but I want to turn back to your question on retention. Um, Stephanie, if you look at retention rates now, how much of this is a guns for hire market where average tenure is two years, three years, and then simply the compensation inflation hits and off they go? That's definitely a major issue. I think it's more than just like SOC analysts. We've, been ta- we've mentioned SOC analysts a few times, but really amazing threat researchers, for example. Um, people with deep forensic and incident response skills those individuals are constantly targeted by other by other companies. I don't know the exact tenure, but yeah, two to three years, they develop those deep skill sets or they start to have some experience on some large scale projects with large enterprises. They're constantly recruited by other um, consultancies, um, government agencies, um, vendors as well. Um, so I think particularly in private enterprise, it can be difficult to retain, retain individuals because that's who you're competing against. You're competing with the likes of... Um, the largest consultancies in the world, largest service providers, U.S. federal agencies and other government agencies. So it's it's definitely highly competitive out there. That's why I think you have to go beyond the compensation. I think compensation is hugely important, but I think also the kind of environment that you're working in, giving them new problems, developing new skill sets, opportunities to grow within the enterprise. Um, I think that's really important. I've even had clients who are willing to pay a lot of money, but because of they were it's an undesirable location. They have trouble attracting good security talents as well. And we're, we're talking, they're willing to pay people a lot of money. Um, so it's not always just compensation, but. So how much of this is sort of like IT where you have certain industries or certain players, like I'll just pick out Google or New York, where there's a lot of VC action where you have natural movement towards those cities or those companies. And unfortunately away from other industries and other cities where it's just harder to either acquire or retain that talent. Let's say the flyover city is a classic example in the U.S. So that's definitely a part of it. I, I would also say, think about it in these terms. Let's say that you're someone that loves incident response, for example. So you love forensics, you love investigating, you know, when a nation state or when a criminal organization gets inside an environment, moves laterally, steals a bunch of stuff. Well, there's a real scenario where the kind of companies that are that are experiencing that sort of attack or the kinds of companies that are experiencing that sort of attack more often, uh, it might be in the vendor world where you're part of a consultancy where you're flown in to deal with those when they happen, right, the big name breaches that are out there um, that you read about in the news. 
but you also may concentrate in certain industries like maybe financial services where those, you know, the large banks and large financial services organizations are constantly being attacked by incredibly sophisticated um, threat actors. So there's a little bit of an element of geography, but there's also kind of an element of, you know, what sort of gets you going, right? What are you really motivated to do in this career? And there are certain industries or certain verticals or certain types of vendors where you may want to work for that kind of organization because you just simply get to see more and do more. And and that's where part of that, you know, let security team members experiment, um, let them learn. That's a way to try to, you know, potentially bottle up some of that enthusiasm for the industry without necessarily losing that talent. And that's part of the reason why it's so important to make sure that security understands their growth path and their trajectory. And as an organization that you keep, um, you know, sort of stating that curiosity as much as you can to the extent possible. You brought up consultancies and in other disciplines within the enterprise, it is somewhat true that when you have this imbalance where the consultancies simply pay more, it's more attractive to work for them. There's more cool stuff that they do. There's more of them than would sit in the enterprise and you move into a sort of a quasi-BPO or outsourced environment, how much are we, is it being forced into that model? It wants to go into that model. It's resisting that model where you're essentially outsourcing that to which is protecting your firm. So if you look at security budgets now, this is something we've tracked since all the way back in 2014. When you look at security budgets now, what you'll find is that over, uh, so if you compare the budget between products and services for organizations, so the amount of the budget that goes to product versus the amount of the budget that goes to services, what we now see is that over 50% of security budgets now go to services. Um, and that's been a huge change over the past few years for the sort of prior six or seven years before that, um, the majority of budget went to products and not services, right? So I think that services are there to do a few things. One, uh, it's for the organization that can't do this, right? They, they just don't have the skill set. They don't have the people. They don't have the time, or the energy, or the inclination. So they can turn to, you know, MSSPs, consulting firms, security as a service solutions to try and take some of that off of their plate. But there's also, you know, real scenarios, especially when you get into things like uh, breach response and incident response, forensics, and even threat research, where there's a real question as to whether or not your organization should be doing those activities, right? Maybe it's something that's so sensitive or so important, or it's an internal issue where you want to keep that sort of need to know restricted as much as possible. And so you'll turn to external partners to do that. So we definitely see a bigger and bigger shift to services. And I do think that part of that is absolutely because of sort of the staffing issues, but it's also because of retention. As Stephanie pointed out, you know, if you bring someone in into an entry-level security role, and frankly, it doesn't really matter what that role is. It could be risk-related. It could be security, uh, purely security-related. What you'll find is that about one and a half to two years in their first opportunity is about all of the runway you have with a candidate, right? You've got to, you've got to identify a career path for them and skill growth for them to move out of that role in about the next two years. And so even for organizations that do find themselves successfully recruiting at the entry level, the problem for them is that transition between entry to mid-level is so rocky and so problematic that they lose people after two years or so, and then they wind up having to turn to services to try to augment what might be a mid-level set of skills 
as opposed to an entry level. But I think short answer, services are absolutely helping to offset some of this. So this dynamic of having senior people attempting to hire younger people who have a low patience level want immediate sort of career progression guidance. That's not unique to security. That's that is broadly castigated as a millennial dynamic. How much is security simply being affected by the broader millennial dynamic, which I think is posing any number of challenges across the enterprise? In that regard, then they're not unique, but I think because of the needs of the industry and the competition, it's more acute than what other parts of IT or other parts of business are feeling. Again, because there is a demand for real skills because of the changing threat landscape. Um, and there's just a huge amount of competition from external organizations. So I think it's it's far more acute in security than it is in other, in other industries. And then, it, it, you know, the point that we haven't totally touched on, which is the diversity issue, which is, again, you have all these open positions. And today you just keep recruiting from the same well over and over again. And the well's been dry <laughs> for a while. But you keep going back just to check and see if there's more water. There's no water there. So maybe you need to go check for a few wells. But no, and when we were doing the research for uh, women in cybersecurity, yeah, we found the same practices and over over again. They were going after the same degrees in the same universities or they were- They the, go- hi- they the hires. Hiring, yeah. yeah. They the hires, you know, recruiters within larger enterprises or, you know, the hiring managers themselves within the security organization, just going back to the same recruiting sources. So it could be uh, certain programs at universities and certain degrees. A lot of organizations do go after individuals with military backgrounds. Um, but it's not even just general military. They were going after specific cybersecurity expertise within the military, or they were going after military intelligence. So, um, or or they were going after um, universities that had hackathons or industri- the same industry conferences that were constantly like dominated by men. Um, and so, of course, like they, you were going back to the same pools, trying to recruit from them. That's where all the competition's going as well. There, there aren't enough numbers of men to fill the open positions that you have. Um, so the, there was a number of challenges. Is that premised on professional habit? Meaning I'm used to doing a certain thing, so I'll keep on doing it, not out of malice, not out of carelessness, just simply out of habit. Or is there an inherent bias playing out here that has to be addressed overtly? It, it is both. I mean, I think the, there is the biasness where um, – I, I have in my head that uh, a successful security professional, whether it's a SOC analyst or it's a deep forensics and uh, forensics investigator, is a certain profile. It's a certain individual with a certain background and expertise. So I, I'm I'm specifically trying to hire that individual over and over again. Well, there is a lot of unconscious exactly. bias. Yeah, as I well. just I think I wanted to make the point of conscious and unconscious bias. Like I think both of those things probably likely exist in this scenario as well. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's a lot of unconscious bias, which is it's much more in a lot of instances more difficult to address because right. you have to get people to become aware of it and not not get defensive about it, and it it can require a lot of of training uh, to sort of combat and undo that unconscious bias. The interesting thing about the research, too, is a lot of the, um, you know, the recruiting issues and then also once you hire people, the retention issues, which is what sort of culture do you have? Do you have a toxic culture internally? Um, do you have a culture that's just not suitable to um, diversity, diverse candidates, women and other diverse candidates? What we found actually is when you think about it, everything we've been talking about, which is here's an industry desperate for people paying six-figure salaries, 
why aren't more men coming to it as well? So what we found actually is a lot of the practices that were turning off women turn off a lot of men as well. So like what kind of practices? Um, you know, you take these like hackathons, for example, and it's like you're eating terrible food and you're up all night and there's oh. this hero mentality that you've just got to stay up and solve the problem and be first. Um, power through. Yeah, power through. And actually, interestingly now, you actually do have a lot of security professionals sort of speaking up about mental health issues and the unhealthiness of some of the lifestyle that they're they're living um, or the job descriptions. They all feature like military jargon and descriptions of military not everybody is turned on by this idea of attackers and defenders and... Um, Bog of war. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or, again, if you look at the the family benefits um, as well, I, I think everybody wants more time off with their family. And, you know, everyone's got children and everyone has parents who are elderly and need help. So it was just also the the lifestyle across the board and the culture across the board. It was... That was one of the eye-opening pieces when we were doing the women in cybersecurity research is it was turning everybody off, particularly women, but it was turning everybody off. So uh, practices aside, so I'm in marketing and I'm sure it's still true. It certainly was true at a certain point in time. Being in marketing was really cool. I mean, the assumption was you had good hair, you wore good sunglasses, travel was cool. Things that float from your mouth were really, you know, clever. Now you've got to think that being in the security world is really cool. I mean, the threat levels are at a point in time where they're sitting and, and the headlines of news. Well, it's certainly dynamic. It's dynamic. Yeah. It's consequential. It's, it, it, there's TV shows about it. And those TV shows, that also, they have good hair. So why would just the denominator not be growing just because it's such kind of a happening discipline? I think it is changing, but there's still a lot of lingering stereotypes out there. Like there's a joke on the team about, you know, every time somebody in the media or in the news like wants to feature a hacker, like they still go back to the hooded figure crouching over like a keyboard. Like to this day. That's not true. Yeah. To this day, like, you know, they'll go. That's the image that everybody loves to use. We've actually sworn off like no hooded figures allowed <laughs> in presentations. But I think going back to your question, I mean, part of the problem is in your question that I think that's the point, right? We're saying that there are people interested in cybersecurity, but those looking for the talent are not seeing the entire entirety of the pool. Well, that's a part of it. And, and the barrier to entry is one that's particularly interesting. You know, you find, um, so Stephanie mentioned, you know, universities, um, it's a bachelor's degree, for example, right? And, and one of the points that we make is, you know, sort of drop default requirements for college degrees, right? Um, we shouldn't need this sort of letters of patent system uh, in order to sort of indicate that someone has intellect, motivation, and fit from a hiring perspective, right? Maybe it's technical schools, community colleges, Maybe it's boot camps, maybe it's formalized or informal uh, mentorship programs that can also be a, a source uh, of candidates that you look for. But there's also things like certifications, for example. And we were talking to one security leader that was actively putting um, his personnel through various certification courses. And when, if they needed to go to another city to take that course, plus the tuition and fees of the course itself, he was talking about sort of having five to $10,000 investment for that person just for that particular course. And so if you make that a hiring requirement, for example, you're suddenly looking at a pool of the population that 
could own that could afford to pay for that, right? So you're automatically eliminating, you know, candidates that may not know about that particular certification, candidates that can afford to be off for that amount of time, or that can afford to buy the study materials and and sacrifice the time necessary for that. So there's this element of kind of the way that one security leader we spoke with put it, sort of abdicating their um, sort of candidate uh, identification responsibilities to these sort of gatekeeping mechanisms that that really sort of put you in a situation where you're only getting candidates with certain types of backgrounds or certain types of capabilities or certain income levels or certain regions because you're forcing them to have these things. And again, when we're talking about a self-inflicted staffing shortage, that's what you're talking about, right? You're talking about sort of being uh, or remaining ignorant of the broader spectrum because you've got these handcuffs on, in some cases, ones that you may not even know about. This consideration of having a staffing shortage and out of necessity, I consider diversity is not new. And I think, at least in my experiences, what I have found is two things are true. One is you open up the aperture and you find out there's brilliance everywhere. The second one, and maybe equally or more important, is you begin to look a little bit like the market you're serving. In this case, it might be that the hackers and people coming in are more diverse than you are and you want to reflect that intellect and that thinking as well. I mean, there may be advantages to diversity that are inherent in the security craft. How does that play out here? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. If you, if you do look at the hacker community, um, white hat and black hat, um, it's, it is diverse. And I think that's another stereotype, which is that every, every hacker is this lone individual uh, male, lone male individual of a certain, of a certain profile. And that's not true at all. I mean, you have, nation-state organizations that are highly diverse. Um, you have organized crime syndicates that are highly diverse. They are hiring for the best talent. And in many cases, they actually run themselves as a business. Um, or in the case of a nation-state, they actually have military and political um, objectives and, and aims that they're trying to achieve, and they hire for the best talent. So they're highly diverse. Um, and I think, Jeff, you, you had brought this up, and I'll let you you know, run with it, but it's more diverse teams are actually higher performing as well. So by not looking both like the ultimate community that you're serving, but also the people that are attacking you, um, you're narrowing your ability to think like them and adapt to their, to their changing, their changing attack methods and techniques. And that's the, that's the part that I think should, it should really sort of, um, it frightens security leaders, right? So if you, if you're so, sort of, um, if you want to ignore diversity as an argument, right, I think at the end of the day, even for security leaders that might be resistant to that, and, and goodness gracious hopes that there aren't that many of them anymore because uh, we have to find them and get rid of them. But even if assuming you have some reluctance for that, I think that it's very simple that if you have teams that are not as diverse as attackers are, right, then you are delivering a suboptimal outcome to your business in terms of your security program because you are missing perspectives. You are missing thought processes that you wouldn't have with a more diverse team, right? And there's also an element of culture to that because not only do you need diversity, but you need people to feel sort of free and open to express that uh, diversity, right? That sort of ideological or intellectual diversity that you have on the team. So there's both an element of recruiting to that, but also an element of culture internally that you make people feel empowered to express those ideas. 
And when you're talking about a nation state, it's all about accomplishing the mission, right? And so at your company, you have to think about diversity as something that helps you accomplish your mission, which is ultimately defending the enterprise, right, or enabling the enterprise to operate in the way that it chooses to. And that's why there's so much value there. And for fear of stating the obvious, I mean, security leaders, by not addressing this, are putting their firm at risk, right? Bluntly stated. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I would even go so far as to say that they're negligent. Mm. Agreed. I think that's the right word for it. So on a purely pragmatic basis, it's a market where the risk is escalating and not anticipating to you know, plateau anytime soon. The consequences of that risk are escalating. You have staff shortages. You benefit from the diversity of thought, perspective, all sorts of things. So what's in the way? Like I don't like understand what's in the way because it appears that all points lead to growing the pool of talent that I can tap into, and allowing that pool of talent to be as diverse as a threat I'm attempting to address. Is it again? Go back to is it bias? Is it just habit? Is there something structurally in a way, or does it just require a whole new leadership structure that sort of just rethinks the problem? Well, so I'll throw two things out. Um, First, I, I think that when you hear that there's a staffing shortage, and then you experience the staffing shortage, you sort of get a confirmation bias there that doesn't allow you to examine whether or not what you are doing or how you are doing things is exacerbating that, right? So there's a real sort of element of perception versus reality. Again, there's there's a a staffing shortfall, right? That the profession is growing, but the degree to which you experience that shortfall is variable based on the practices and principles that you operate with. I'll also say that at this point in time, you know, going on on Stephanie's sort of negligence comment, I would argue that any security leader that hasn't examined their program, their security team, their processes for finding and keeping talent for bias, whether conscious or unconscious, um, they are negligent, right? At this point in 2019, you, you should be fully committed to the prospect of analyzing uh, your requisitions, for example, to make sure that they aren't inherently biased. One of the things that I know Stephanie's seen in research and we've seen other places is that the more skills you list on a requisition, for example, um, will affect the, the diversity of the candidates that you get, right? Uh, women in general are less likely to apply for job requisitions that have more skills listed than men are, for example. So I would argue that at this point, there really isn't any excuse for conscious bias, certainly, but there also really isn't any excuse for unconscious bias at this point in your hiring processes, because you should be willing and able to audit those and make sure that you're not alienating a set of candidates that would lessen the amount of the shortfall that you are experiencing as an organization. We began this discussion talking about a staffing shortage in a market that's fraught with risk. As we went through this discussion, it struck me that all arrows are pointing in the same direction. Of course, one would look at growing the strength, diversity, and sheer numbers of talent that I can tap into for for desperate reasons of just numbers in to address a market of diverse, you know, threats. So in the next year, does this resolve itself, require an intervention? What what happens in the next year that that sort of deals with this arrows all pointing in the same direction kind of thing. I'm optimistic that 
we are starting to address the problem. When we were doing the research for the Women in Cybersecurity Report, like vendors, consultancies, they were tripping over themselves to be interviewed. Like I never felt so much excitement for a piece of research as I had for this particular report. The problem is like the it had been a problem for decades. So you can't resolve an issue that had been growing and becoming more pernicious over decades in a, in a single year. Like I think it's going to, in order to fill the pipeline, you know, with girls that are eight years old today, you know, we're talking about decades. So I think the we've turned the corner in terms of the realization of the problem. I think this is the year that CISOs really start to make an effort to everything Jeff talked about, look at their processes, start to right the ship. But it's still probably going to be five, 10, even 15 years before we really start to see the numbers, I think, you know, dramatically improve. And maybe that's both optimistic and pessimistic at the same time, but you can't undo decades of, of uh, bad practices overnight or even in a year. I, I think that's exactly right. I, I think luckily awareness of the issue is where it is now. We've identified some principles and some practices that, again, can help you sort of alleviate some of the self-inflicted aspects of this. But when you're talking about a talent pipeline and when you're talking about sort of educating people about career options and about careers that exist and exposing them to uh, technology, you know, security is in a position where in some ways we've isolated ourselves um, to look a certain way and be a certain way. And that takes many, many years to undo to Steph's point. And I think um, that it's going to be a while before we address that. But luckily, there's enough sort of broad based awareness of that of that problem that the steps are in place to start resolving it. But, you know, it's going to take a while before it fully fleshes out and, and gets fixed. Wow. Really illuminating. Really, really interesting. Thank you both. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you. Want to hear more from Stephanie and Jeff? Join them and other Forrester analysts and industry leaders at Forrester Security and Risk Forum in National Harbor, Maryland this September. For more information and to reserve your seat, visit for.com slash security risk. That's forr.com slash security risk. Thanks for listening.